are traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. When the Twilight Zone was released on Blu-ray here in the UK, I was of course very excited to receive it. They had been available in the US for some time, but those discs were region locked. I didn't really want to go to the expense of a new Blu-ray player just for the Twilight Zone. But when they did come out in the UK, I was lucky enough to be involved with the promotion of those releases at the time and part of that was I was sent each new season as they were released. Now when season one came out I wrote a glowing review of it and then I received season two. I still wrote a positive review and I think it's probably lost to the ages now but I do remember making the comment that, compared to season one, season two was a bit light on the heavy hitters. And what I meant by that was those almost untouchable episodes of the Twilight Zone, the landmarks, the ones that have broken through into pop culture sometimes, like Time Enough at Last, but also those ones that maybe aren't as big in the mainstream but are still landmark twilight zones things like mirror image so here we are in our run on the twilight zone podcast with the episode that we'll be discussing tonight we're just passing the halfway mark of season two it's a season of 29 episodes and now we're at episode number 16 so we're making our way into the second half of the season and i think it's here that that lack of heavy hitters as i called them starts to show itself because the first half of the season did have them we have the howling man we have eye of the beholder we have the invaders episodes that will stand with their heads held high with pretty much anything in season one but scanning down the second half of this season, there aren't really any that seem quite as monumental to me. There is no formula to this. Of course, it's all down to individual taste. And I'm not saying there aren't good episodes in this second half of the season, but we are getting into a maybe more variable area of the Twilight Zone. And in a way, that's kind of more interesting to me because as your host on the Twilight Zone podcast, when I'm talking about something like Time Enough at Last or one of these other landmarks of the show, sometimes I do feel like there's not much in the way of new observations I can make with an episode like that. So digging into these lesser known ones is bit more of a treat for me because I don't watch ahead of time from where I am in the running order of the Twilight Zone podcast. 
So some of these episodes that we've yet to come to, I haven't seen for many years, and I dare say there probably are a few in the coming seasons that I might not have seen at all. But tonight's episode is one that I do remember because it has quite a catchy premise to it. But is it a Twilight Zone landmark? Well, let's find out when we look at a penny for your thoughts. Mr. Hector B. Poole, resident of the Twilight Zone. Flip a coin and keep flipping it. What are the odds? Half the time it'll come up heads, half the time tails. But in one freakish chance in a million, it'll land on its edge. Mr. Hector B. Poole, a bright human coin on his way to the bank. First broadcast on the 3rd of February 1961, written by George Clayton Johnson and directed by James Sheldon. I touched upon this briefly in the last episode, but just to recap, we have come across short stories by George Clayton Johnson that have been adapted for The Twilight Zone, and those are The Four of Us Are Dying and Execution, but this is the first of four that were specifically written for The Twilight Zone by George Clayton Johnson. The next one is A Game of Pool, then There's Nothing in the Dark, and finally, Kick the Can, although there is a later story credit for 90 Years Without Slumbering. Now, Del Reisman was credited officially as the associate producer for the second season of The Twilight Zone, but he says in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that his task consisted mainly of being the story editor. He said, I reviewed material submitted to Cayuga, Rod and Buck. I worked with the writers, helped Rod find the stories needed, and I also assisted Buck in many of the production details. There were story submissions from viewers, individual writers would contact us, and agents were always pitching ideas. One of the young writers was George Clayton Johnson, who I'm sure you're familiar with. He had a whole crate full of ideas, and Rod finally told him, look, you're friends of Charlie and Richard, but you've never written a teleplay before. How about you write the stories, we'll buy them, and then someone else like Charlie will write the teleplays. Well, George comes up with this story about a man who can read people's thoughts. Rod tells Buck and me that I want Dell to work with this guy and get a teleplay out of him. So I did, and that became A Penny For Your Thoughts. The director, James Sheldon, we met a few episodes ago with The Whole Truth. Perhaps one of my most negative Twilight Zone reviews so far, so let's see how he fares this time out. In our intro, we saw that Hector Poole, played by Dick York in his second Twilight Zone appearance, throws a coin into a box of a street vendor when he's buying a newspaper. The coin lands on its edge and he immediately starts to hear people's thoughts. Then we get one of those whip pans to Rod Serling giving his intro. Now the thing about the whip pans is that it usually signified that Rod Serling wasn't there on the set, which is unfortunate because I've said many times now how I like it when he's part of the scene. But clearly here we've got a bit of a mock-up of that street scene going on. 
In his opening narration, Rod Serling says that Hector Poole is a resident of the Twilight Zone. So let's talk about this method by which he becomes a resident. A coin lands on its side and for some reason this makes Hector able to hear people's thoughts. It's a play on the old saying, a penny for your thoughts. Now regular listeners will know that I will often try to rationalise what the Twilight Zone actually is. Now it's purely a fan thing because I don't think Rod Serling had a master plan as to what it actually was. It was just a good way of him telling these stories. So often with a Rod Serling story, a person either enters the Twilight Zone or is affected by the Twilight Zone because of who they are or something they've done or a lesson they need to learn. This time round, Hector Poole enters the Twilight Zone seemingly by chance. So, if I try to make the Twilight Zone a thing, an entity, a place, a dimension, I like that there are different ways of actually entering the Twilight Zone. We've seen it before where it's a way of judgement, that kind of thing, but here, it's a bit more by chance. I'm reminded of a Clive Barker story, it was possibly in the Books of Blood, obviously very tonally different from this, and it was about certain superstitions, specifically children's rhymes, for example, step on a crack, break your mother's back. And there was a person in this story who was very disapproving of these things, these rhymes. But it transpired that actually these rhymes were rules to live by and they were spread through generations by word of mouth to keep us safe because stepping on a crack would quite literally result in your mother's back being broken, that sort of thing. So what I'm getting at is that the coin to me suggests a set of rules beyond what we comprehend that govern the Twilight Zone. And one of the ways to access the Twilight Zone is to throw a coin and for it to land on its side. Pretty much an impossible feat. Originally, Hector's method of entering the Twilight Zone wasn't via this coin that lands on its side. And in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic, George Clayton Johnson relays a story. Dick York, the character of Hector Poole, is hit with a car and later comes to realise he can hear voices. Well, the budget wouldn't allow them to spend the time or the money to build up a great car accident. Someone on the set comes up with the idea of putting a string on a coin and he shows it to Sailing, and Sailing says he likes the idea. Well, they film this coin trick and it flies through the air and snaps outright, standing up on its edge. A miraculous situation that grants Hector Poole a chance to hear other people's thoughts. So it's kind of interesting that this name, A Penny For Your Thoughts, and this situation with the penny was in itself kind of by chance. So Hector Poole arrives to work at the bank and immediately his newfound ability starts to manifest when he speaks with his adulterous boss, Mr. Bagby, played by Dan Tobin. Yes, sir. What is it, Poole? Mr. Bagby, uh, I, I would like to explain why I was late this morning. Yes, uh-huh. Well, sir, a very strange thing happened this morning. I, well, I, as you know, sir, uh, 
My record for promptness is spotless. I pride myself on my attention to duty. Yes, Pooh, we're all aware of your devotion to the bank. Get on with it, you simpering idiot. Do you think she's going to stay on the line forever? If you ruin my weekend, I'll string you up by the thumbs. Uh, your weekend, sir? Uh, spoil your weekend? What are you mumbling about? Weekend? Can he know about Felicia? Impossible. I've been so careful. So discreet. When you look down Dan Tobin's resume, you can see that he was the very definition of a supporting player. He has this slick but slightly shifty look about him. He reminds me a little of the character of Templeton in The Trouble with Templeton. In his appearance, you know, they both have this immaculate hair and these pencil moustaches, but Templeton is this proud, noble man, whereas Tobin conveys a certain underhandedness, a man not really to be trusted, but not an out-and-out -out villain. So perhaps he was perfect casting for this respectable banker who's having an affair with a showgirl. There's a lightly comic tone to the episode, it doesn't really seem to be going for the big laughs, more amusing than anything else. For example, in one scene we see that a blonde lady is sitting at the counter in the bank just lovingly fondling some money, and when Hector tries to listen to her thoughts, he realises that she's not thinking any at all. Throughout his working day, this new ability reveals the thoughts of his colleagues and the customers in the bank, and early on some groundwork is set up for things that will pay off later on. For example, Sykes, a businessman who has applied for a loan, comes in, but he's not being completely honest about what he wants to use it for. A business loan for $200,000. That's quite a sum. You expanding, Mr. Sykes? That's right. That's wrong. Uh, well, uh, uh, which is it? Pardon me? Oh, nothing. Uh, Mr. Sykes, you are aware that this loan must be completely repaid within 90 days? I certainly am. If I bet the money right, it could come to well over a million. I could pay back the loan and have enough to keep Ajax out of bankruptcy. I'll put half of it on Lucky Lady in the sixth and split the rest between Nimble Runner and Crinoline at five to one. Nimble Runner? Five to one? So that's a little setup to help Hector out of a tight spot later on. But in the here and now, he's just going about his day. And one of his colleagues is a lady called Helen Turner, played by June Dayton. June was one of our typical hard-working actors that we meet quite often in the Twilight Zone. And there's nothing that really sticks out too much on her resume. She played three different parts on Days of Our Lives. She played five different parts on Perry Mason. Three different parts on The Fugitive and five different parts on Quincy, and there are more examples of her playing multiple parts in the same show. I wish I could say that it's down to her being a chameleon, but I think it's more down to the fact that these were small, not particularly memorable parts. But she was that level of actor, it seems, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know? She was in and her living, doing her job. And in this, she's fine. You know, that's all you can really say. She plays a sweet, nice woman who is a perfect match for sweet, nice Hector Poole. Poor Mr. Poole. 
You do all the work around here and get none of the credit. You should speak up more and assert yourself. But I guess that's not in your nature. I hope Mr. Bagby is easy on you. Good morning, Mr. Poole. So by this point in the episode, we've been introduced to Hector and his powers and how they work. So it's time to get down to it and for the story to begin. And the thing that gets things moving is the arrival of Mr. Smithers, an old employee of the bank who looks like he should probably have retired years ago. 20 years at the same desk. It isn't fair. Ah, but they'll be sorry for their treatment of me. Yes, at 4.30 this afternoon, I'll go into the vault like I always do. I'll take my briefcase with me, and no one will suspect the thing. I'll fill my briefcase with currency and be on ship to Bermuda by nightfall. They'll be sorry. Yes, indeed. A very interesting looking man, Smithers. He's played by Cyril Delavanti, who was a London-born actor. He was born in 1887, so would have been about 73 at this point. As it seems to be with the supporting cast of this episode, he had a niche and he was quite happy to stick within it, even though it didn't give him any particularly big roles in his career. He was ideal to play butlers, shopkeepers, people who looked like they'd worked in a particular job for many years. But he was also a respected drama coach in Hollywood who trained the likes of Douglas Fairbanks. So he has 161 credits to his name on IMDb because he was just happy turning up for these small parts which allowed him to also use his time on stage. It's his first of four Twilight Zones which include The Silence, A Piano in the House and Passage on the Lady Anne. And he also appeared in an episode of Night Gallery in the segment The Sins of the Fathers. So in this one where he plays Mr. Smithers, he's had these thoughts that he's going to steal money from the vault at the bank, which leaves Hector in a difficult position. So he informs Mr. Bagby, the bank manager, about what Smithers is going to do. So at 4.30 when Smithers goes to the vault and comes out, Mr. Bagby and the security guard are waiting for him. But there's no money in his bag and Hector is fired, but before he leaves, Mr. Smithers has a quiet word. How did you know? How did you know, Mr. Poole? It's true, of course. I was thinking of filling my briefcase with the bank's money. Yes. It's a little dream of mine. Have you ever had a dream, Mr. Poole? I have. I don't always plan on Bermuda, though. Sometimes it's Siam, Fiji. Beautiful, exotic places where there are no books to keep. Where I'm not a little man with no future and no past. Yes, Mr. Poole. Yes. But I'll never go through with it. 
You're the one. I've lived with it too long. I'm old and set in my ways. And besides, Mr. Poole, I guess I'm a coward. There are certain things we've probably all imagined at one point or another in our life. Being able to fly, being able to turn invisible, and probably being able to read people's thoughts. How great would it be to be able to do that because so many other things would come of it? Money, sex, power, you name it. Being able to read someone's thoughts would bring it around in some way. But would it bring you happiness? And I think what this episode is focusing on is that difference between what we think and what we say. And maybe there's a good reason we all have our internal thoughts rather than everything being external. And this is crystallized in this little speech from Hector. Until this morning, everything was normal. I was happy. At least I wasn't unhappy. And now this. It's like seeing people with their, their clothes off. I never imagined people were like that. You know, we do things without thinking about them at all. And we think things without having the slightest intention of doing them. Hector Poole is, of course, played by the great Dick York. Now, we've spoken about Dick York before, way back when we covered the Purple Testament, so I won't go into his life the same way as I did in that episode. He did two Twilight Zones, and this was his last one. I think he is the best thing about this episode. He has a really great sense of timing when it comes to those little comic moments and they're not always big those little looks that he does those little unspoken reactions to things that he sees or hears his facial expressions he's not too broad with it either he's comedic without being over the top he is that every man that we all enjoy seeing that we all root for when i do one of these shows i have a little scout around on the internet and read a couple of reviews here and there just to gauge opinion not too much as I, I do want to stay fresh when I come to each one but this one seems to get a generally positive buzz from people on my first rewatch when I started to research it I don't really think I appreciated it as much as popular opinion I didn't dislike it but it seemed to be a very static episode it's mainly in that one location and Dick York goes from one place to another. He has a conversation with someone, walks over to someone else, has another conversation, walks over to someone else, has another conversation. So it's a little bit plodding in that way, but I do think I've warmed to it a bit more with subsequent watches. Then there is this subplot about this relationship between Hector and Helen Turner. There is something between them, maybe more on her part. We get the impression that she's longed after Hector for some time, but it's remained unspoken. And I never really cared for this subplot much on my first rewatch, but as I've watched it more and more, I have come to appreciate that part of it as well. I think the reason it's there is more than just a need for there to be a love interest in the story for Hector, it's there to show another facet of this thing that the show is really about. What we think and what we actually say. 
Whether it's the man in the street who apologises but really wants to punch your light out, or the secrets that people who you think you know really have, like the respectable bank manager and the showgirl, or the dreams of a sad old man who keeps himself going with a fantasy that he'll never fulfil, or in the case of Miss Turner, the person you see every day who has feelings for you that they might never tell you about. Every person is their own world of thoughts. I can imagine that if Sailing was the one to write this episode, he'd perhaps have had a more serious take on exploring that facet of the story. But George Clayton Johnson goes for a more light-hearted take, which is equally as valid. Now, in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grams Jr., he prints a passage from an interview that George Clayton Johnson did with Matthew R. Bradley, and it seems that there was a possibility that it would be another short story that Rod Serling adapted, so we might have got a bit more of a serious take on it. But he says, I turned it in, they accepted it, and that is when I decided to use some leverage to get a script. I said to Buck when he called me up to praise me for the story and say they were going to do it. I can't let you have it until I get a chance to do the first draft. There were some very stiff silences back and forth as we really were aware of what was going on because it was clear I was holding him up. He had made a deal, Rod liked it, thought it would make a charming show and was ready to write it himself. And here I am saying I want to write it. Here's Rod feeling guilty about this sea change story that they bought and then been forced to sell back to Johnson due to reservations for the sponsor, saying, sure, let him write it. And Buck sort of caught in the middle, not wanting to cede me this power, but realising that I could really throw a monkey wrench into their plans, although I would hurt myself as well. But I was the stubborn and idealistic type, and I really felt I could do it. So that's how it went. George Clayton Johnson got his script, and there is some comedy to be mined from this idea of reading people's thoughts and seeing how two-faced people can be. But it's light, it's fun, and apparently there was the possibility that this could actually go further. In The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Zickrey, George Clayton Johnson relays a story about being on set and getting this reaction. Dan Tobin said that it was a darn clever idea. He thought it would make a series of what would happen to people who came into contact with that coin. So I wrote a presentation called A Penny for Your Thoughts, and I wrote a story about a gambler who got the coin which allowed him to read thoughts. He was in a big poker game and he knew he was going to win. He'd won one poker game and another and another because he could read the minds of the other players. Now it's finally the biggest poker game of all, and it's all very obscure. He's taken to this very special place to meet with this very famous gambler, and the very famous gambler is an Oriental, and the Oriental thinks in Chinese when he's watching the cards. So that one seems a bit more of a potentially serious treatment, but who knows, who knows. Because this episode of The Twilight Zone, it does have a bit of a 50s sitcom vibe about it. Maybe because Dick York is there, 
but I think it escapes being over the top like some of the comedy from that time can seem now. And in true sitcom fashion, everything turns out in the end and everything is reset to normal. When it's discovered that Hector is right about Mr. Sykes from Ajax Cement, he gets his job back with a promotion to boot. He manages to use a little blackmail to get Mr. Smithers that ticket to Bermuda and he gets the girl. And on the way home, he knocks over that penny so he can go back to normal again. So it's a bit of a feel-good vibe about it this week on the Twilight Zone. Hector is a good man and he uses these temporary powers in a good way. Thankfully, George Clayton Johnson too enjoyed his time in the Twilight Zone. In the Twilight Zone companion he said, I felt sort of like a stranger on set. It was the Twilight Zone set, not mine, and I felt like I was being allowed to eavesdrop by even being allowed to be there while it was done. And while this was happening, Rod came through with a couple of people, visitors that he'd brought on, and he saw me and Lola, and he stopped to introduce us to these people. And his attitude towards me was one of great respect. It wasn't like, I'm Rod Sailing and this is one of the flunkies on set. It was more like, look, he's the man who wrote this absolutely wizard thing that we're making right now. It really built up my ego and made me feel worthwhile. So it seems everyone gets a bit of a good feeling from this Twilight Zone, but does it qualify as one of those heavy hitters that I mentioned at the beginning? It's certainly a memorable one. People do remember the one about the coin that makes the man able to read minds. And it does seem to be pretty well regarded. So, is it the last heavy hitter of season two? Well, I'll leave that up to you. And we'll see whether there's any more in the Twilight Zone. One time in a million, a coin will land on its edge. But all it takes to knock it over is a vagrant breeze, a vibration or a slight blow. Hector B. Poole, a human coin on edge for a brief time in the Twilight Zone. Let's read some feedback from listeners to the Twilight Zone podcast in Submitted for your approval. Now I've received a couple of messages from people who have written to me but unfortunately their emails ended up in my spam box. I don't know why but I just checked it by chance the other day and found some emails from people so my apologies if I have ever received an email from you and not read it out because this could have happened many times and I've just not realized it so I really do apologize if someone sent in feedback and I've not read it. I do tend to read the ones that say something about the episodes. Um, so I've got a couple to catch up on that uh, are talking about past episodes. I got one from Mike Vasey and he said, I haven't just listened to the episode prelude to back there. 
The two programs featured, the method used to transport the travellers through time is similar to the TV series Quantum Leap. Other things I've read or seen that explore similar ideas about alternative timelines, the consequences of altering history does create an alternative timeline, include the recent books Making History by Stephen Fry, which depicts the consequences of preventing the birth of Adolf Hitler, believing that things will be better, in fact it's worse. 112263 by Stephen King, a departure from the usual bill of fare from him, bogeyman in Maine, a man tries to prevent the assassination of President Kennedy. Other things I've seen that explored similar premises were an episode of the aforementioned Quantum Leap, where Sam leaps into Lee Harvey Oswald, an episode of Red Dwarf, where the cast managed to prevent Kennedy's assassination resulting in his impeachment for something, but I won't spoil the plot, and a film whose title escapes me where a professor sends his young assistant back in time to prevent Kennedy's assassination. He succeeds, but he gets shot by Jack Ruby instead of Oswald. The professor sends his assistant's wife back in time to prevent that. Can't remember the consequences, but they were disastrous, so the prof goes back himself and put things right. Submitted for your approval. So thank you Arthur, a, a good few things there to check out on that similar theme, thanks very much. I had a short one from Mike and he says, I've been listening to your podcast for a couple of years now and I just wanted to say thank you for making such a well-made, thoughtful retrospective. It's easily the best TZ podcast out there, keep up the great work Mike. Now. I usually just read the ones about the episodes um, and I'll, I usually reply to people who send me an email saying, you know, love the show, etc, etc. But uh, Mike sent this a couple of months back and because of that aforementioned spam box uh, incident, I just wanted to read that out and say thank you to him um, because I'd left it so long before replying. Now, I also got an email off Anne Bassano, I hope I've said that right, and she says, Hi Tom, I'm just catching up on past episodes and the story of Dust blew me away. I liked that Twilight Zone episode, but I hadn't paid too much attention to it. The link to the Emma Till case and its early incarnations really made it a more significant episode for me, and I wonder if a sequel to it mightn't be the later Twilight Zone episode, I Am The Night, Colour Me Black which is a more ambivalent and much darker story. It seems to me that Rod Sailing may have been increasingly frustrated with the escalating violence and racism of the 60s and continued to use those themes in later episodes. I also wonder what he would have thought of current events and what he could have done with the less restrictive platforms of cable TV and the internet. The best Twilight Zone episodes are a Rorschach test your reactions to the show can tell you as much about yourself as the intentions of the creators. And that's from Ambassano from New Jersey. Well, thanks very much, Anne. I appreciate that. And, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You touched on there what would Sailing's output have been if he'd lived. And it's a great question. And, you know, 
the world was a better place for having had him in it and i think with what's going on at the moment we could certainly use we could certainly use some of his wisdom so this is the end of another twilight zone podcast next time round is a story episode where I and my good friend Brandy Jacola are going to read a couple of short stories, and they are quite short, but these are the stories that inspired the episode 22, a couple of ghost stories. So that's going to be the next episode, and then after that, we'll be looking at the episode 22. So if you want to get your thoughts about these Twilight Zones or past Twilight Zones, then you can find me an email at tom at the twilightzonenetwork.com and before i go i will thank the people who have put new reviews on itunes we've had reviews from popcorn funnies darth corgi victor sabas and Stephen, the twilight zone fan so thanks to you you know they really help spread the word about the twilight zone podcast and it's one of the few kind of things you get back from a podcast because you know i've said it on different shows that i don't make money from it you know there are podcasters who do manage to do that in certain ways but i don't it just it ends up costing you money you do it for the love of it for the love of the show i don't think people realize how much those reviews actually mean to someone who you know spends time putting this thing together so thank you to you guys who have done it and if anyone else out there could take the time to do it i would really appreciate it so that's enough from me i'll see you next time on the twilight zone podcast